So Pastor Jonathan has mentioned uh, in the course of our study of the book of Isaiah that the whole book of 66 chapters divides naturally into two parts. The chapters 1 to 39 form the first part of Isaiah and chapters 40 to 66 the second part. Now the book of Isaiah has been called the Bible in miniature. So let us look at some of those similarities. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah and there are 66 books in our Bible. The 39 chapters of the first part of Isaiah can be compared to the Old Testament with its 39 books and both focus primarily on God's judgment of sin. The 27 chapters of the second part may be seen to parallel the 27 books of the New Testament and both emphasize the grace of God. The great difference between the two sections of Isaiah is that chapters 1 to 39 are really God's pronouncing of a warning to the nation of Judah. And the second section of Isaiah opens with the ministry of John the Baptist, as we'll see shortly, and closes with the new heavens and the new earth in Isaiah 66. And in between, there are many references to our Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and as King. Of course, the chapter divisions in Isaiah are not part of the original inspired text, but the comparison is still interesting. Now, if you've been with us since the beginning of Isaiah, you will have noted that the dominant note right the way through is the folly of Judah as they have refused to trust in the Lord. And they have trusted either in their own resources or in alliances that they've made with Egypt or with Assyria and various other allies around them. And Yahweh has warned them. You can almost pick a chapter at random in these first 39 books of 39 chapters of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 31, there's a great example of this key note of these opening chapters, where Yahweh is pronouncing a number of woes upon various peoples. And he says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are mighty but they do not regard the Holy One of Israel, nor seek Yahweh. Here is the great folly of Yahweh's people. They have, by their actions, by the way that they have lived, by the priorities that they have had, revealed their real confidence was not in Yahweh, but merely in human resources and cunningness. In these 39 chapters of the first part of Isaiah, Yahweh again and again makes known that he is a God who is going to bring displeasure upon his own people if they continue to persist in this way of disregarding him. And over a, prol a prolonged period of time, through the prophets and now through Isaiah, Yahweh has pled with them and he has warned them and he has sought to draw them back from their folly. And he has used almost every possible tone of speech and argument to persuade them. And yet they persist in turning away from him. But throughout these 39 chapters too, it is seen that Yahweh is a God of judgment 
also, he's even more so a God of salvation. Yahweh's real purpose and his real work is to save and restore his people. And as the great Scottish preacher Eric Alexander puts it, judgment is Yahweh's strange work. It is what God takes no pleasure in. Just look at verses like Ezekiel 33 verse 11 and 2 Peter 3 verse 9. Yahweh takes pleasure in repentance and salvation. He rejoices to restore his people, but if they will ultimately not be restored, then his word is a word of judgment. It has sometimes been said that the whole chapter of, the whole section of chapters 1 to 39 are a solemn note of judgment. And then you come to the fresh air of chapter 40 and you find that here is Yahweh speaking as the God of salvation. But you just need to look through, through, through a few parts of these first 39 chapters to see that that is not entirely true. Throughout the whole of the first section of Isaiah, Yahweh is seeking to bring salvation to his people. Just look back with me, for instance, at chapter 12, where he says, Then you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Yahweh, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, my God is my salvation. I will trust and not dread. Notice the word comfort. These are the very words that open chapter 40. And you will get the same note in chapter 14. Yahweh will have compassion, compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and put them in their own land. And again in chapter 33 in verses 5 and 6, you will see the same positive notes of Yahweh longing to come as the savior of his people. And in verse of chapter 33 he says Yahweh is exalted for he dwells on high he has filled Zion with righteous with justice and righteousness and he will be the stability of your times a wealth of salvation wisdom and knowledge the fear of Yahweh is a treasure Yahweh is holding out before them again and again the possibilities of grace the glories of salvation. And he says that there's a key to this treasure. There is a treasure of rich salvation that Yahweh has for you. And it is the fear of Yahweh. That is the key that will open this up to you. And then in chapter 35, where Yahweh speaks to them in the famous words of the desert and the wilderness, rejoicing and blossoming, the glory of Lebanon being given to it, And they will see the glory of Yahweh and the majesty of our God. And throughout the first chapter, first verses of, sorry, throughout these first 39 chapters, you get all this promise of judgment laced with Yahweh's earnest desire for salvation. What he's really saying to them is, I would far rather bless you than punish you. I would far rather restore you than judge you. I am a God of salvation whose reluctant work is judgment. And chapter 39 brings this message of judgment to its climax. In this chapter, Isaiah is given the prophecy 
first to King Hezekiah and then to the people of Judah that Yahweh is going to carry off his people into captivity. Now we know that that happened, firstly through scripture and secondly through recorded history. Yahweh's people were taken from the land of Judah and exiled into the land of Babylon. But from that exile, there was to be restoration. And chapter 40 begins the account of how Yahweh is to bring salvation to his people, even as they are exiled in Babylon. This, of course, means that chapter 40 of Isaiah is prophesying in the narrow sense of foretelling the future. And it is important for us to realize that Isaiah is still speaking to the people of Judah in that day. He had warned them, so he was still speaking to his own generation before the exile in, in Babylon. He has warned them that Yahweh is going to come and judge and chastise them and take them away into the land of Babylon, where they will suffer the reality of being exiled from Yahweh. But he will ultimately come and deliver them again. And what he is speaking about is something that took place one and a half centuries later when ultimately the deliverance came when Cyrus, the king of Persia, allowed the exiles to return to Jerusalem under the leadership of men like Ezra and Nehemiah. But this is really important. Not only is it Isaiah in chapter, not only is Isaiah in chapter 14 onwards foretelling what is going to happen when the people of Yahweh go to Babylon and are ultimately delivered there, but he is also speaking to them about the ultimate deliverance that Yahweh has in mind. Far beyond Babylon, a deliverance not from an exile in a foreign land, but a deliverance from the bondage of sin. This will be accomplished not by Cyrus, the king of Persia, but by Jesus, the suffering servant, who is the promised Messiah. Yahweh is a God who is bringing his people back to him from every kind of bondage. He delivers his people and he brings them to salvation. This ultimately is the message of Isaiah chapter 40 to chapter 66. The message of that suffering servant who will lead his people from a bondage far greater than Babylon because he will bear their iniquity. Now, if you haven't done so already, please turn with me in your Bibles to the prophet Isaiah chapter 40. And I'll be reading the first 11 verses. Please follow along in your Bibles. Comfort, O oh comfort, my people, says your God. Speak to the hearts of Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has been fulfilled, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received from the hand of Yahweh double for all her sins. A voice is calling, prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain, the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. 
a voice calls out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loving kindness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of Yahweh blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Raise up your voice powerfully, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Raise it up and do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, Lord Yahweh will come with strength, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will shepherd his flock and in his arms he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom and he will gently lead the nursing ewes. This is the reading of Yahweh's holy, authoritative, and all-sufficient word. So the title of my sermon this morning is Yahweh's Comforting Promise. Yahweh's Comforting Promise. And this morning in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 11, we will see that the prophet Isaiah reveals four aspects of Yahweh's comforting promise so that Yahweh's people can rest in the assurance of his promises, knowing that nothing can change the fact that Yahweh has saved us and that in him we have a glorious hope and future. The four aspects of Yahweh's comforting promise we will study together this morning are, firstly, the proclamation of his comforting promise, verses 1 and 2, the proclamation. Verse 2, the content of his comforting promise, comforting promise, verses 3 to 5, the content. Aspect 3, the certainty of his comforting promise, verses 6 to 8, the certainty. Verse, uh, aspect 4, the spreading of his comforting promise, verses 9 to 11, the spreading of his comforting promise. Now look back at uh, verse 1 and my first point this morning the proclamation of his comforting promise so that Yahweh's people can rest in the assurance of his promises knowing that nothing can change the fact that Yahweh has saved us and that in, that in him we have a glorious hope and future. Now you will notice in chapter f- that chapter 40 begins with a word of exhortation that Isaiah was to proclaim. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. It is an exhortation that was to bring encouragement and hope and healing to Yahweh's people. And you'll see that there's an emphasis on the need for this by the repetition used. And as you read and study Isaiah, you will see how Isaiah commonly uses repetition. In chapter 6, for example, when he wants to emphasize the holiness of Yahweh, we have the angels proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. And here he uses repetition of the word comfort. Comfort, oh comfort my people. This comforting word is again emphasized in verse two using different language. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Now the ESV uses the word tenderly in explaining the way that Isaiah was to speak to Jerusalem. He was to speak tenderly to the heart of Jerusalem. 
Now here is Isaiah being told by Yahweh and exhorted by him that he is to have a ministry to God's people of encouragement. He was to speak tenderly to them. That's a tremendous thing to find here at the beginning of the second half of Isaiah. When God has been speaking so fiercely and in so many ways to his people, where some of his appalling woes have been pronounced upon them and the reality of the judgment of Yahweh has been spelled out. Yahweh now comes with, a great emphasis, with this great emphasis and says to Isaiah, speak to the heart of my people. Speak tenderly to them. Comfort them. The word in Hebrew here is used, is the word that is used for comforting the morning. Those that are grieving and in the midst of sorrow. And Isaiah is being sent by Yahweh to bind up the wounds of those that have been hurt by the reality of their sin and the judgment of Yahweh upon them. Yahweh's word of comfort, Yahweh's words of comfort are to bring healing and encouragement. Now there are three elements in this proclamation in verse two. Firstly, her warfare has been fulfilled. Secondly, that her iniquity, another word for sin, has been removed. And thirdly, that she has been received, that she has received from the hand of Yahweh double for all her sins. The first thing that Isaiah was to proclaim was to be an encouragement of comfort, a tender word from God to the heart of Jerusalem. Her warfare had been fulfilled. And the language used here conveys the idea of a time of darkness and misery and, and of hardship that has passed. These times of hardship and suffering and of misery were brought on because of their rebellion against Yahweh. And so we see rebellion against Yahweh, turning from his ways, ultimately pays its own wages. And in the book of Isaiah, we are reminded that the way of the transgressor is hard. One of the great lies of the devil is that walking in the will of God is hard. And sadly, our fallen nature, like that of Adam and Eve, includes a secret suspicion that the dev what the devil says is true. And because of this, we all suspect that trusting Yahweh absolutely and to lower our, la our lives at his feet is going to lead to hardship. Whereas scripture says, it's the way of the transgressor that is hard. And those who walk with Yahweh receive eternal blessing, comfort, and reward. Yahweh is saying to Isaiah, tell them that their warfare is ended. The hard service has been completed. The service of sin is hard. Doing the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect leading us to be transformed into the image of Christ. Let us remember the words of Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, in chapter two, verses one and two. And you who were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh 
and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Those who walk in sin are governed by the desires of the flesh and of the mind. They are children of wrath. They are dead in their transgressions. To walk with Yahweh means that we must choose to glorify Him in every way that we can, regardless of the personal cost. We are not to be conformed to this world. Rather, we are to present ourselves as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God. The Word of God ministered in our hearts by the Holy Spirit is the only power on earth that can transform us from worldliness to true spirituality. In fact, it is all we need to be made complete, fully equipped for every good work, and the result is that you may be approved by God and know what is good and what is pleasing and what is perfect. And it is the will of God for every believer to be a living sacrifice for Jesus Christ. Secondly, in verse 2, we see that her iniquity has been removed. Her sin has been paid for. Now, this is the language of receiving and accepting a sacrifice for sin. And the sufficiency of that sacrifice is acknowledged when God says to Isaiah, proclaim to her that her sin has been paid. Her iniquity has been removed. To those who have sinned, both to the Judeans and to us gathered here today, the message of forgiveness comes again and again in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 43, verses 25, Yahweh says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And again, in chapter 44, verse 22, Yahweh says the same thing. I have wiped out your transgression like a thick cloud. But how, does, how was this to work? How do we understand such a statement as this in, the cha- in these chapters of Isaiah? The answer is to be understood in the light of what, was, what is about to come in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. This, how is it that Yahweh would then forgive sin? How is it that Yahweh would no longer remember his people's rebellions against them? And it is in the 53rd chapter that we see that there is one who is coming, the one who has borne our sins and carried our sorrows, the one who in himself is the basis of comfort and joy. Jesus bore our sins on that cross so that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. A difficult section of verse 2 to understand is the last one, that Judah has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. What is Yahweh saying here? Is he saying that he gives double the necessary punishment for sin to his people? They have received double for all their sins. But a quick look at Scripture, and we will see that Yahweh is not unfair in his chastising. He is merciful even in his punishments. Listen to what Ezra chapter 9 verse 13 says. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant as this. 
Yahweh chastened them in the equivalent measure to what they had done. And Yahweh had given them ample warning through the prophets. In Jeremiah 16, verse 18, Yahweh issues the stern warning. I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have profaned my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and with their abominations. Yahweh's chastisement is always fair. And it's important, it's an important thing for us to remember that God's kindness does not lead us to indulgence, but it should lead us to repentance. The fact that he is kind when we deserve punishment, that he extends comfort, should not cause the person who grasps it to go out and say, well, then that's good. I should just go and do as badly as possibly as I possibly can. After all, is such a comforting God. No, may it never be. When the comfort of God is made available to us, it doesn't create indulgence. It's to, it causes us to be sorry and repentant. It creates this repentant heart within us. And the Apostle Paul reminds us of this in Romans 6 verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Any person who claims to be with Christ yet continues to live for sin is contrary to the word of God and you are not fooling God. Let me say that again. Any person who claims to be with Christ yet continues to live for sin is contrary to the word of God and you are not fooling God. You are dead to him. Now let us move on and look together at verses three and five in my second point this morning, the content of his comforting promise so that Yahweh's people can rest in the assurance of his promises, knowing that nothing can change the fact that Yahweh has saved us and then that in him we have a glorious hope and future. So verses three to five. A voice is calling, prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. The first voice we encounter in our passage this morning is the voice of he who is the servant of Yahweh. He is sent by Yahweh to prepare the way for Yahweh to come as savior to his people. Now you realize that this is what the whole of this section of Isaiah is, is about. Yahweh coming as savior into the desert, into the wilderness, where he is to bring them salvation. And the picture here is the picture of a king who is coming to bring his people back to himself again. And as he comes in his kingly majesty and his saving grace, there is a preparation that is to be made for his coming. Now we know, of course, that the ultimate fulfillment of what Isaiah is here speaking about is in Christ, and not just in Christ's first coming, but also in his second coming. In Isaiah, 
there are some prophecies that will not be fulfilled until Christ returns again in glory. It is in the New Testament where we see this prophecy of the voice calling out about the preparation for the coming Savior fulfilled. That voice of preparation is fulfilled in John the Baptist. And you will remember it is John the Baptist who in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 23, identifies himself as the true fulfillment in relation to the Messiah of this promise. And where they said to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. The picture here in verse 3 is of an ambassador repairing the roads and removing obstacles, preparing the way for the coming king. And here it is, so that the king might come to perform the task of salvation. Yahweh, through his prophets, is going to make preparation for the coming of his son, the glory of Yahweh, who we see in verse 5. And we know that verse 5 is referring to the Messiah because the Apostle Paul also spoke of Christ as the Lord of glory in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 8, and 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. The term Lord being the New Testament translation of the Old Testament name Yahweh. All kinds of obstacles are in the way, and these will need to be removed before Christ comes again. Verse 4, let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low, and let every rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. This preparation would culminate in the birth of Jesus Christ. But before that, a herald would proclaim his coming in the wilderness. And as I've said, this, of course, is a reference to John the Baptist, whose preaching ministry took place in this wilderness. The wilderness was to remind them of how Yahweh had saved his people from the wilderness that they traversed in the Exodus after 40 young years. But it is also the spiritual wilderness in their hearts that will lead Yahweh to drive them to Babylon. In, in Isaiah's day, just as in Moses' day before him, and in John the Baptist, Baptist's day after him, and in, in our day here today in Johannesburg, the need to remove the obstacles that bar the way to fellowship with God is clear. And verses 3 to 5 is a picture of the preparatory work in the souls of people before Yahweh's salvation. Prepare the way for Yahweh. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now, if that is fulfilled chiefly in John the Baptist, which the New Testament makes absolutely clear, we can then understand that what this preparation is. Because, of course, we know that the ministry of John the Baptist was mainly a ministry of repentance. And this is what John came preaching. He came preaching repentance. And the main thrust of that is that there is a voice, sorry, that there, that there is a preparation that needs to be made for the coming of the Lord of glory. And that preparation is, of course, a preparation of the soul. It is a preparation of repentance. Make smooth the desert, a highway for our God. This is the need for repentance. 
Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. And true repentance will result in a change of actions. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Acts 26 verse 20, that they should repent and turn to God, practicing deeds appropriate to repentance. So how do we change our sinful actions? Only by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith can we succeed in putting off sin, or as the Apostle Paul puts it, make no provision for the flesh. Putting on the Lord Jesus means to stay close as possible to Christ, to follow, him cl- to follow closely in his steps and to fellowship with him, to abide in him. Only when we abide in him and in his word shall we succeed in making no provision for our flesh. We don't have time this morning, but if you want to see an example of what biblical repentance looks like in real life, just look at the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19 or the story of Paul and his conversion on the road to Emmaus. Brothers and sisters, we need to see our sin in order to see our need for Christ, the Savior of sinners. Conviction of sin is necessary if sinners are to see their need in Christ. Only when we see our sin can we possibly see our need of him who said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Turn to Jesus and submit yourselves to him in obedience to his word. His burden is light and his reward and honor are for all eternity. In our own power, we are unable to set ourselves free from sin's consequences. The good news of the gospel is that God came to us in our sin and he sets us free, providing precisely what we need. The cure for sin is provided in Christ's selfless life, lived in obedience to the will of the Father and his sacrificial death on the cross. On that cross, Christ not only paid the penalty for our sin, but he also delivered us from slavery to sin so that we could become slaves of God and righteousness instead. This forgiveness is provided for all, even the worst of sinners. So do not delay. Humble yourselves today and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. He is rich to save all who come to him. And should you have any questions about the gospel of salvation, do not hesitate. Please come and speak to me or one of the elders after our service. Let us return to our text in verse 5. And this first part of verse 5 tells us what the result of this repentance will reveal. For God, for Israel to enter the kingdom, she must turn to Yahweh and then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed. What a beautiful day that will be. Listen to what Zechariah 12 verse 10 says. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. All flesh will see the glory of Yahweh. For Israel... The blessings of restoration will include the fact that they will see the the glory of God in his kingdom. This glory will be manifested in the person of Jesus Christ in the midst of his restored people. They will realize that Jesus himself is the glory of Yahweh. Listen to what Zechariah 2 verses 10 and 11 says. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I'm coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh. 
and many nations will join themselves to Yahweh in that day and become my people. Then I will dwell in their midst and you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. The glory will come again in full display. 2,000 years ago, Yahweh took on flesh and his glory dwelt in the presence of his people under the veil of frail humanity. But when he returns, he will come in the fullness of divine glory and power. The end of verse 5 reminds us that all prophecies spoken from Yahweh will come to pass. So the promise of verse 5 is true and certain, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Brothers and sisters, are you prepared for the return of Jesus? Scripture tells us to live in constant watchfulness and spiritual alertness, anticipating his his return. Are you living your lives in this anticipation? Are you praying, Maranatha, come, come, Lord Jesus. Now let us turn to verses 6 and 8 of my third point this morning. The certainty of his comforting promise is that Yahweh's people can rest in the assurance of his promises, knowing that nothing can change the fact that Yahweh has saved us and that in him we have a glorious hope and future. A voice calls out, and then he answered, What shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and its loving kindness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of Yahweh blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but our word of our God stands forever. In verse 6, we see the second voice from Yahweh to Isaiah, telling him to cry out. This, that is, to speak out. And Isaiah says, what shall I call out? And the answer given concentrates on the one thing that Judah was refusing to see. They were blinding. They were blinded to their passing temporary weak nature and to the eternal permanent glorious character of God and his word. Notice what he says. All flesh is grass and all its loving kindness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade when the breath of Yahweh blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. This is the message that the people of God needed to hear, that the human strength in which they had been putting their confidence in for so long was like the grass that grew up so bright and green and then withered and died away. And the only thing that really lasts, Yahweh is saying to them, is the word of God. And only his word is reliable and lasts. The Apostle Peter in his first epistle quotes Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8 in, the first chap- in his first chapter and then states, And this is the word which was proclaimed to you as good news. The gospel is good news. It is eternal truth, and it is God's means for giving eternal life to sinful and mortal men. It is ever cha- in this ever-changing world, it is good to know that the wor- our word of our God stands forever. That word is reliable in every circumstance of life. When we are facing trials and afflictions, it is good to rest upon the certain promises of God's word. When we fall into sin, when a comf- what a comfort it is to know the way to confession and forgiveness. The immutable word of God stands firm for every situation. Yahweh will never change his mind or go back on a promise. Now, isn't that comforting? Let us move on to my 
final point this morning in verses 9 to 11, the proclamation of his comforting promise so that Yahweh's people can rest in the assurance of his promises, knowing that nothing can change the fact that Yahweh has saved us and that in him we have a glorious hope and future. Get it yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Raise up your voice powerfully, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Raise it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of, Ju- of Judah, behold your God. Behold, Lord Yahweh will come with strength, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will shepherd his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and, they will, and carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead them lead the nursing ewes. The message that Isaiah is given is really summarized in the end of verse 9 and beginning of verse 10. Behold your God, behold Lord Yahweh will come. And notice how he comes. He will come in strength, but he will also come in gentleness. In verse 10 we see that Yahweh comes with strength and his arm, with his arm ruling for him. But in verse 11 we see that he is like a shepherd. He will shepherd his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and he will carry them in his bosom, close to his heart. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Now, there's a little doubt about that one of the great problems with many of, which, which many of the people of Judah was, that they had come to think of God in a distorted way. They imagined that his power was the kind of brute force that was used in the nations surrounding them. But Isaiah here is seeking to show them the power and strength of Yahweh, which could crush as he extends his hand in judgment. But it is really there in order to bless his people. It's a strength that shows itself primarily in tenderness. And it's a strength which is best seen in the picture of the shepherd, which is the great biblical picture for God. He is our shepherd king. And his shepherdly love and care is such that he deals with the lambs, gathering them in his arms and carrying them close to his heart. The strength of, of the shepherd of Israel is revealed in his tenderness. That's where strength is truly revealed, incidentally. Not in brute force, not in the kind of fleshly energy, but the tenderness that you find in the heart of God. Gentleness is one of the marks of Jesus. And in Matthew 11, verse 29, after compelling sinners to come to him, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It is also one of the fruits of the Spirit that we see in Galatians chapter 5. Brothers and sisters, when did you last pray that God would make you gentle? In verses 9 and 10, Isaiah is saying, Behold your God. Behold the Lord Yahweh comes with strength, but he also comes with gentleness. And who is the shepherd? Jesus himself tells us that it is him in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 12. I am the good shepherd. What more could we hope for? The Geneva Bible of 1560 comments at verse 9. He shows in one word the perfection of all man's happiness which is to have God's presence. Spreading this glad expectation to others is the best way to amplify your own joy in it. And Paul organized his whole life in this way, telling us in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 23, 
so that I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. C.S. Lewis explains how this joy in the gospel works. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poets, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite sport, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical persons, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. Just as people spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't it lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that was magnificent? I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because, we pra because we, the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. Yahweh's purpose is not only that you and I enjoy the comfort of the gospel, but that we increase our enjoyment of it by spreading the joy to others. All to the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time that you shared who gives you this joy? Who gives you this confidence, this comfort in this uncertain world that in which we live? Remember our Savior's own words in Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it on a, under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all those who are in the house. Let your light shine before all men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Our gospel joy is authentic and satisfying only if we desire to taste the joy in the hearts of others. Do you want to gain people? Do you want to gain people of all kinds in order that you might share in the experience of gospel joy? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Brothers and sisters, those marching orders have not been rescinded. Those marching orders came from Christ himself, and they are still in effect. We have to put the go back into the gospel. We have to go to all the world. We do this really in humble obedience, out of a heart of love, because our Lord has charged us and commanded us to do so. So in verses 9 to 11, we see that peace and blessing are what the shepherd will bring. Our sin-ravaged world, world longs for something better. For those who are willing to trust in the Son, that day is coming, and it will be in paradise. The prophet Zechariah in chapter 8, verse 4 and 5, gives a brief description of what the, king, the coming kingdom will look like for Israel when God restores Israel. Thus Yahweh of hosts, old men and old women will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of his age, and the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in the streets. Isn't it wonderful to think that the most defenseless of society will one day live in tranquility, peace, and security? So in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 11, 
we've seen that the prophet Isaiah reveals four aspects of Yahweh's comforting promise. And in it, Yahweh's people can find rest and we can be find assurance in his promises, knowing that nothing can change the fact that Yahweh has saved us and that in him we have a glorious hope and future. We looked at the announcement of his coming promise, the content of his comforting promise, the certainty of his comforting promise, and the proclamation of his comforting promise. But no study of the book of, the book of Isaiah and this word comfort can be complete without us turning to what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 14, verse 8. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. The Apostle Paul is confessing that in life and death, he knows he belongs to the Lord Jesus what a blessing it is to be able to say this. This is my only comfort in life and death, which the Heidelberg Catechism defines as that I with my body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but I belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This is indeed the only comfort. A comfort that will sustain us <clears throat> in whatever circumstance we may find ourselves in. Why did the Apostle Paul find such comfort in the knowledge that he was the property of his Savior? He knew that Christ had purchased him on the cross with the price of his own precious blood, a purchase that cannot be reversed. This purchase has been fully endorsed by God the Father when he raised his well-beloved son from the dead. Paul understood the, ram the full ramifications of that divine endorsement, knowing that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That knowledge caused him to confess with great joy that nothing, neither life nor in death, can separate God's children from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. This blessed knowledge enables believers to rejoice even in tribulation. The comfort of knowing that he was Christ's property enabled the Apostle Paul to worship God in the prison cell of Philippi, to encourage his fellow men in the midst of a raging storm, and to serve Christ cheerfully while under house arrest in, in Rome. That knowledge enabled him to face death well, knowing that it would, put, that it would be but a translation into the presence of his beloved Savior. Brothers and sisters, are you drawing comfort from the immutable word of Yahweh? Or are you living in fear and the discomfort of the wilderness? Look to Jesus. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the Savior who will never forsake the work of his hands. You can find rest and comfort in him. Let us pray. Gracious and merciful Father, we thank you for the rich treasures of your salvation in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we thank you that you are the God of all comforts. You are the God who speaks tenderly to us, the one who offers solace in the midst of our trials. 
and forgiveness for our sins. We thank you that we can come to you and find you to be the Father who is tender and gracious. We ask you, gracious Yahweh, that you would touch us by your grace, that we may glory in your salvation. As we leave this place, may the comforting promise of Yahweh accompany us. May it be a source of strength in the times of weakness and a beacon of hope in the moments of despair. Help us to share the comforting promise of your gospel with those around us and to the ends of the earth. We ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom, with you and the Holy Spirit, we gladly give all the honor and praise, now and forever. Amen. So I'm going to ask uh, Tabello to join me here at the pulpit. Today is our last official Sunday with Tabello. On Saturday, here at Livingstone Bible Church in this very sanctuary, we will see her marrying Reginald, and she will be moving to Limpopo, where Reginald is an elder in training under Paul Schneerlein, and um, Kevin told us a bit about where Paul Schneerlein is situated and to whom he's ministering. So our dearest Tabello, as you embark on this beautiful journey um, to join your soon-to-be husband, Reginald, we bid you a fond farewell. Your presence in our church has been a blessing. A blessing. Your joy is unmeasurable, and we have seen you serving with great joy. And we celebrate today with love and joy, and that you can now celebrate a new life together with Reginald. May the road ahead be filled with grace and laughter and shared dreams, but centered and anchored on Christ. As you leave this community, you take with you the love our love and our prayers, and we're going to miss you as a church family, but we're going to rejoice also for the love that unites you and Reginald. So go forth with the knowledge that you carry our blessings and well-wishings. May your, your marriage be a testament to the enduring love, the power of love, to Christ's faithfulness, and we pray that God's word may guide you in every step of your way. So I just want to ask everyone to please join me in prayer as I pray for Tabella. Heavenly Father, we lift up Tabella and Reginald before you as they stand on the threshold of a new chapter in their lives. Bless their union with your grace, love, and wisdom. May their marriage be a reflection of your divine love and a source of joy and strength. Grant them patience in times of trial, understanding in moments of disagreement, and unwavering love in all circumstances. May their home be filled with your presence and with your word, and also with the peace that surpasses all understanding. Lord, we entrust Tabello into your care. She navigates the challenges and joys of married life. May she, may she always seek your guidance and lean on your unfailing love. Surround her with a, with a supportive church community, and may her marriage be a testimony to your faithfulness. As Tabella and Reginald journey together, may their love deepen and may they be a shining example of the covenant of marriage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.